So, welcome back to Waroni News Team's radio show. We're here today with Jasper. Good afternoon. And Zelda. Hello. I always love the introductions. Um, so, before we begin, of course, I'd like to acknowledge um, that we're currently running this radio show on Nanawal and Nambri land. This land was never ceded, it always was, and it always will be Aboriginal land. Um, I say this at um, the beginning of most of our radio shows, but we are amping up towards The Voice. The question itself has just been announced. And um, I guess pay attention to Waroni um, to really think about whether or not we're doing a good job in elevating First Nations voices. Um, we're not here to talk over people. We want to give them the platform that they deserve and have been historically denied. Um, all right, so we're going to get into it. So to kick it off with our first subject, we're going to be talking about the closure of the Hobart Place GP practice. So it's one of the only bulk billing practices left that was available to ANU students and has recently closed down. So to kick it off, we want to know why has Hobart Place closed down? Great question. Um, it was an interesting little release that they sent out to their um, patients. Effectively, they kind of just aimed at government and the current government system. Um, it was a lot of discussion around how the bulk billing system isn't um, providing enough funding. Um, the government just isn't helping to facilitate anyone near enough. And so they've had to close down. And they're also moving um, location, which would make me think that part of it was probably rent prices, um, which always affects businesses like this. Um, it kind of broadly comes in a context of like a really struggling healthcare industry. Um, just today, New South Wales doctors are calling on the government to allow them to increase the number of script repeats mm -hmm. and the number of medication they can prescribe at any one time. Um, there is this kind of real, real overload um, happening in the system. Um, and this is just kind of one aspect of that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's interesting in the context of the pharmaceutical guild kind of asking for more prescriptions to be able to give by pharmacists to remove some of that burden on GPs. So I guess getting into the second question is what can, um, what are going to be the impacts of the Hobart Place closing down? That's a great question. I think broadly it's never good to have less supply of doctors. Um, you know, it's not a luxury item. Everyone needs it. I think um, Ari, the ANU itself, the only other... Um, doctors within walking distance is the ANU Medical Centre, which does bulk bill for students. So it is free for students, but has quite drastic wait times. You know, you're looking often at two to three weeks. Um, it's also in the middle of privatisation. And as we've seen from when it went from being run by the National Health Co-op to being run by the ANU to then being privatised again, um, that real turmoil does um, kind of mess, not with necessarily one-off patients, but with people who are repeat customers. Um, because you get you find your records get lost, you have to resubmit forms. Um, so there's some impacts there now that that's the only kind of doctors within walking distance. But there's also, you know, that means that you're going to see increased demand for that. Anyone with a um, chronic condition is going to struggle a lot more now if they were seeing Hobart Place. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is a common criticism of the ANU medical practice, is it's almost staffed entirely by male doctors, which is a, a real point. Um, and Hobart Place had a much more diverse set of doctors. So that included um, female doctors, but it also included doctors who speak languages other than English, which is a really big thing um, and really important because we have a large international student population, but also just important for accessibility. So I think across the board, it's going to deteriorate and worsen people's ability to access healthcare, um, in particular students and in cheap healthcare, which is, I guess, what matters to most people. Yeah, definitely. And I think it kind of comes into the conversation that um, we've been having in the recent time about, you know, people in the cost of living crisis kind of giving up healthcare because of the cost barrier that it's presenting. 
Um, so what do you think, um, with just the ANU, ANU Medical Centre, what is going to be left and what does it mean? Great question. Um, the privatisation process of the ANU Medical Centre is definitely taking a bit of time. It's not entirely clear what exactly is going to happen. It's been open to tender for six months now and no one's bid for it, which shows you the state of the healthcare market. Um, I think what we can expect to see is, is, in the short term, at least a much greater backlog before any sort of privatization. Will privatization solve it? Mm, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a real mixed bag, right? Like it used to be not the best medical service in Canberra when it was run by the ANU, just had massive overhead costs. Um, but, you know, you speak around to some of the political factions on campus and they feel very strongly about its privatization. Um, it's kind of an odd question because you think, well, the government should be providing that health care. Um, and that is the responsibility of the ACC government is to provide the infrastructure for healthcare. care. Um, but anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, in terms of what's happening with the ANU Medical Center, just you're going to see an increase in patients. Um, you're going to see an increase in, in new patients in particular and increased waiting times for just about everyone, which is never fun. No, never fun. So what can be done next? Good question. Um, it kind of goes again to the ACT government. Um, as I mentioned, so constitutionally, um, the federal government provides funding for healthcare, but it's the um, state and territory governments which actually uh, provide that infrastructure and the hospitals. So it's not entirely clear what will happen if anything new. There's been no word from the ACT government on the closure. Um, I expect something will happen, you know, some sort of um, kind of new walk-in clinic will be created, but whether or not we'll see a kind of massive change in funding, it really depends. I mean, as you mentioned, the cost of living crisis is affecting people, and in terms of what most people are going to think about, healthcare is there, but it's also not the most important. It's really only students who need, and, and people with accessibility issues who need healthcare in walking distance. So there's a real risk that they just think, well, you know, we'll, we'll add an extension onto Calvary Hospital, everything will be fine. Um, so we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so to move on to our next topic is the RRR Review, which is the Rights, Relationship and Respect Unit, new consent module that's been introduced this year. Um, so basically, to give a quick overview, the RRR is a new consent module that's been introduced in 2023 to, to replace the old Consent Matters module, and it's been constructed here at the ANU. Basically, its aim is to provide more education around consent and particularly educate on what a healthy relationship should look like. So, Zelda, you've written the article. How would you summarise the student perspective contained within it? Yeah, so I think it's a bit mixed. Um, people are grateful to see a shift towards greater education. There's definitely, like, a need for consent education and there's kind of been expressed by students that that's what they'd like to see. Um, in terms of the ANU Women's Department, their follow-through ANU campaign really wanted to know more about what the avenues for support looked like. And the RRR program does kind of emphasize how they're accessible and where they are and what they look like. So I think in terms of that aspect, there has been positive reviews. Um, but otherwise, the RRR is broken into like three streams. Um, one of them is just like the online module. The other one has in-person um, like an in-person hour long kind of program. And the other one's quite intensive. It's three two hour long like sessions that kind of develops conversations about consent that's happened like post doing the online module but what people have taken away from that is some quite confusing language has been brought up language like sexual project or sexual citizenship and I think that some of that is kind of stepping away from using language um, that's better suited to the topic and can kind of create some confusion 
I think also lots of students came in with questions about consent. And I think college environments in particular can present some confusing situations or situations that definitely need clarity and the ANU has kind of presented itself as the body that's going to provide that clarity but people came away and felt like their questions weren't adequately answered so I think from that aspect there's been some negative reviews about confusion but I think overall people are a little bit worried Um, it's mandatory in college settings which means that if you opt out some people are worried about that being identifying if everyone else is there and you're not there it kind of you know, creates a bit of a situation where you might be identified as having opted out for whatever reason that might be, which is kind of a little bit of a privacy issue. Um, But yeah, other than that, it's been a bit mixed. Some people are happy about it and some people, yeah, are still looking for improvement. Jasper, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're living at Union Lodge, isn't that right? That is correct. And so what's kind of your experience of the Triple R and that sort of consent education? Uh, My experience with it is mixed where I didn't actually do it this year because I forgot and I've never been chased up about it. And so the extent of my consent education is I remember doing the online form in first year and then I believe I was supposed to go to a seminar in second year, which I didn't go to. And so effectively for the fu- over the past three years, I've done one online module when it comes to consent and I've just seen all the posters. So in terms of my view on it, it's, it's very easy to fly under the radar that's what I've noticed because I just kind of keep forgetting to do it. And I suppose to a lesser extent because I'm sort of, I got my head around the issues and the education. I've just kind of said, well, why do I need to do this? Because I'm very much of the view that there is a subset of repeat offenders who lurk the university. And it's a very common thing I hear people talking about in Uni Lodge, especially among the senior residents, is they know people from other halls who go to Uni Lodge as sort of their last sanctity so you get people from john's people from b and g people from wright or bruce that go to lodge after essentially being turfed out of their halls because of their actions and they just go to live in this apartment and because uni lodge is an independent company you know they do not have the records and sort of this because of this unofficial process that doesn't really sort of name and shame these people which to a certain extent i agree with it's not necessarily public knowledge but the students know it Mm. and i think on that um, it's not even Unilodge, you know, we've had similar issues um, at my hall. And I think what you kind of find is, like, as you mentioned in the article, Zelda, there's a discussion around consent, but then there's a whole nother raft of people who consent just means nothing. I mean, I think it was either the, on- no, it was the Grace Tame piece for whom it, that um, she was saying, sorry, that um, consent is sometimes like people don't, they just don't care. Sorry, not sometimes. Mm. She was saying that there is a, as you're right, Jasper, a kind of a type of offender who is there and is doing that action because there is no consent. And that that's kind of a driving force behind why they're assaulting someone. And I think like that definitely goes untouched. But I wanted to ask as well. Um, so uh, you kind of talked about other activists and Oniswa's mm. own piece. To what extent do you think the triple R leans into this unhelpful consent language? Or to what extent do you think it's just kind of like a, uh, just raising everyone up to a similar level of understanding? Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, so Grace Tame kind of presents that kind of simplifying consent situations down to no means no is kind of a form of victim blaming because it neglects the complexities of abuse environments and neglects the fact that people's choice to say no might 
just be ignored or might not actually be safe to give to say no in a situation like that. And so she's kind of saying that just simplifying it down to no means no is kind of reinforcing this culture and realistically we should all be thinking that abuse is abuse and we should be teaching about what abuse is and what it looks like rather than necessarily like perpetuating this no means no. The Honey Swa article argued, yeah, pretty much what you said earlier that um, consent is just like one aspect of it and for some of these repeat offenders, consent, um, it, it doesn't matter if it's given or not. These people actively don't care whether you've consented um, or know that you haven't consented and will continue with their actions. And it's just about kind of brought into this idea that um, a lot of sash is quite power dominated or to some degree male dominated. And it's just presenting the idea that consent, while sometimes it might be a confusion of whether consent's been given or not, the majority of the time, it's clear that consent hasn't been given and it's been disregarded. So I think what the program does aim to do is educate on what consent is and present some scenarios where perhaps for students coming out of school, I know a lot of different schools have different varying levels of consent training. Um, coming from a public school in Brisbane, we had none. So I think to some degree, like clearing up some basic confusion about what a situation is wrong and what situation is right is a good thing, but I think overall the conversation about consent and about overall cultural change more needs to be done than just consent education. And I think just being aware that consent education is a changing topic, is still a topic of discussion and that it's kind of plays not a minimal role, but definitely is part of a larger discussion and a larger cultural change that needs to be had. And I think in terms of ANU, if this RRR program alone isn't enough and it'll be interesting to see what else they have to create cultural change. Yeah. Another question um, that I have is you've done some background research on this and, um, you know, education is one side of the coin, but punishment is another. How much discussion was there around those sorts of punitive procedures, what they look like, what their effects are, and kind of how the ANU is thinking about changing them? Yeah, so I don't think much um, was the answer. I think it's been about creating a culture of discussion and a culture of kind of being able to ask questions. And it's promoted support pathways, but hasn't necessarily promoted punitive action. Um, so kind of as Jasper brought up earlier, there's definitely issues with the way that action is taken at the ANU. Um, there has been multiple incidences of people kind of being shuffled around halls or moved to Uni Lodge. Um, and yeah, ANU has not really given it any information about what kind of punishment per se will be had um, and has instead kind of trying to focus on um, what pathways there are for help and support. Um, yeah, so I think that kind of wraps up that segment. Um, so moving on to our um, third sec segment of today is the Posey Parker protests. And Alex, you wrote the piece on that. Would you like to fill us in a bit about the context? Yeah, so um, Posey Parker, whose real name is, and I have misspelled this so many times, Kelly J. Keen Mitchell. For context... Um, I was like kind of laughed at in the SRC the other night because I misspelled her name so many times. But I think that's a bit fair for someone who like definitely dead names trans people. Um, so Posey Parker or Kelly J is a well-known transphobic activist from the UK. Um, kind of 
it's an interesting context in the UK. They actually have this real um, vein of, we were talking about it earlier, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Um, I tend to prefer the term transphobic because there's not a lot that's feminist about them anymore. Um, and yeah, the UK has this vein of these of these transphobes. And then um, Kelly Jay's done this speaking tour kind of down under in Australia, back to the colonies really. Um, and it did not go well for her. Um, it been met by much, much larger counter-protests all over the country. Um, then quite famously, some people thought, let's come out in support of her. Um, they were Nazis. And uh, they then performed a Sieg Heil on the steps of Victorian Parliament House, which, uh, you know, it is not a laughing matter in all seriousness, but there were a lot of very, very interesting social media posts around what it says about your ideology when your, like, bastion of support is Nazis. Um, so anyway, yes, yeah, so the Canberra protest, we saw about 40 or so um, transphobic protesters there in support of Kelly J. And then we saw about 400 or so Canberrans. Wow. So it was an interesting divide. You had lots of Greens people, Greens senators, sorry, come out to talk. Um, and there was one or two Green MLAs actually from the ACT um, speaking uh, against Kelly J. And then there was people like Senator um, Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts who turned out um, to kind of just show support for what uh, Kelly J is all about. Um, the one thing I'll touch on as well is you also had um, a bit of a scandal that's kind of hit the news and dominated the story around the protest, which is Lydia Thorpe attempted to crash um, the speech of Kelly J who was then tackled to the ground by police. Um, so all in all, definitely a very interesting protest to attempt. Definitely. And it looks yeah. like it's kind of getting echoed on the Australian kind of like you know politician kind of perspectives and the sides of kind of liberals and greens or or I guess in the case of Pauline Hanson kind of independence um so I guess like a good question to ask is what was the demographic like of the protest and how many ANU students were in attendance it's very interesting you should say that so ANU students I'd say there were about 30 people I recognized I'd say there's probably another 30 um that looked of university student age so that's kind of about 60 people um, you then had a number of like kind of, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, number of APS looking people who were walking away from Parliament House to then come protest. So I'm guessing those were staffers. Um, and then you had like a very mixed bag. So there were, um, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union was there, um, coming out in support, in solidarity. Um, we spoke to Jules, who was one of their representatives. Um, that's in the article. They had some very interesting comments about the solidarity and the intersection between trans rights and workers' rights. Um, you also saw contingents, obviously, from the queer department. Um, but I think the main thing is you saw a lot of um, older Canberrans. And I, I found it very interesting. Um, it was interesting to kind of speak to them and talk to them you know as one person said um she was saying she's there in solidarity for her queer daughter her queer friends um and kind of asked there's this slogan of kelly j's which is let women speak and um this this woman that i spoke to said you know that's just disgusting to to say that you speak for me um when you know you can look across the crowd and see so many more women telling you they disagree so it was it was a very interesting turnout and i think very indicative of what Canberra is, you know, as Jules said, um, how dare they come to, to um, Australia's queerest city and try and kind of say this sort of stuff.
Yeah, definitely. And I think kind of the protests are happening not only within an Australian context. We've seen like a big backlash against um, kind of this transphobe protest across all of Australia, but it's also internationally. We saw across in New Zealand that there was a huge turnout against um, Posey Parker. So I guess what is it saying about Australia's changing culture or Australia's cultural views and the fact that we've consistently had a bigger turnout of people against this protest? I think to contribute to that as well, the one reading a lot of the reporting around the Victorian side of this, the funding for this speaking tour within Australia was actually funded by the CPAC network, Concertical mm-hmm. Political Action Conference, which in the United States usually hosts conventions hosted by very unsavoury characters like Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis and Viktor Orban. And along with that, the presence of the neo-Nazis and now some of the more extreme factions of the Victorian Liberal Party mm-hmm. even came out to go and hear some of these speeches and offer... Um, Kelly J. Mitchin, a tour of the Victorian Parliament. On top of this, we've also had the anti-vaxxer movement more recently come to town in Canberra. Are we seeing more of these sort of culture war issues coming from the United States into Australia? What's your read on that? That's interesting. I think they're kind of two definitely questions that go together. Um, I think on the culture one, I think what it's showing is people understand the importance of protesting and activism to an extent. I also think it is showing the culture wars as they come to to Australia. Um, In particular, I think what they're showing is the kind of how the right in Australia is learning what the lightning rods of issues are. Um, You know, there's a lot that, like, the um, American right and the British right have kind of learned about what are good talking points and what are bad talking points, right? And obviously in Australia, we have a number of, like, cultural issues that are unique, such as, for example, refugee policy, um, but also First Nations people and, and how we include them. Um, but I think what it's showing is is the kind of desire of, um, yeah, just the right as an organization to bring um, and borrow from the US and from the UK. And, you know, you saying that and, and your question reminded me very much of Peter Dutton's assertion after the federal election that the liberals need to move more to the right. Yeah. And you kind of think that this is exactly that. You know, Moira Deeming came out in support and the Victorian liberals have had a go at her. But it was very clear in all their rhetoric is they're going into an election. You know, I, I really do question would they have had that go at her if they were in power? Because, you know, she has done exactly what Peter Dutton has called for. She's moved further to the right. Um, and it's kind of this like just, you know, not to be reductive and not to fall into, um, I think it's Godwin's law that, you know, every internet argument ends with an accusation that you're a Nazi. But, you know, the right, the real right are Nazis. I mean, like that is where you get to. And I think we're seeing this is, is um, you know, the kind of broad church idea of Menzies, that you have that real divide of, you know, like these are people who are conservative, but they're not like this. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. It is, it is a real continuum. Um, I think on the culture, it shows a lot about, um, you know, Australians are educated and are informed. Um, I have my gripes with our tall poppy culture, um, but I think what it shows is that there are Australians out there who kind of, who listen. You know, and I think that's what was really powerful is speaking to these people. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't anyone holding Judith Butler quoting theory. It was just like, someone just said, you know, how can you, how can you be against trans rights? That just is hate speech. You know, it's just, it's very clear principles around we want to be a country with freedom and support and we don't want that freedom to look like the majority or a majority having a go at a minority and one that is so um, underrepresented in Australia and in Australian culture. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's probably just talking a bit more to like the shifting politics kind of Australia wide. Like 
kind of coming into our next topic, which is the New South Wales election. But Tasmania is now the only liberal-held state left in Australia, which is... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I know, guys. Sorry. Um, But that's so interesting. You know, we've had this huge change in politics recently. And yeah, in the context of the far right, in the context of liberal politicians kind of being involved in this way, it's just interesting to see, is that is that what Australia wants, you know? Um, so moving into the New South Wales election, Jasper is our key election writer at the moment. So would you yep. like to give us a bit of a overview, Jasper? Um, so there's currently a full analysis piece in the works as the votes continue to be counted. We don't actually know the formal safe uh, seat count and if Labor is going to form a majority government, but that's what the numbers do look like. In total, there was a statewide swing of 6.5% to the Labor Party, and it looks like they can get between 47 and 50 seats in the lower house, 47 required for a majority. And so they're back in government after 12 years. So... The big thing about this election is the big things to watch out for was what the Liberal Party was going to do, how badly they were going to be defeated, and how much of a fact the independents were going to be at play. And a whole lot of those things happened to varying different extents. The independents did not show up in nearly the way we thought, and especially the sort of teal independent taking seats away from the Liberals. This turned out to be much more of a classic Labor versus Liberal contest, and the slow momentum that Labor has gained over the past couple of years to pick back up the seats that they lost in their landslide defeat in 2011, um, that is now pretty much rematerialized, and they've gotten their seats back in what has, for the majority of its history, been a Labor state in New South Wales. So zooming out, Dominic Perrottet has now resigned as the Liberal leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party. And so from here, where does he go? Does he leave state politics and go into federal politics? Who takes over the reins of the New South Wales Liberal Party? And as we head into both the Voice and now the Aston by-election in Melbourne, and with this broader discussion about which direction the Liberal Party chooses to go in, we now live in a Labor continent. Mm. You have to go to sea to go to somewhere which is run by the Liberal Party, and a very different Liberal Party than what we're seeing anywhere else in the country or at the federal level. Do they go to the right? Do they go to the centre? What is the future of brand liberal? And with this momentum towards Labor, are they going to go further on some of the issues that they care about? We've just seen negotiations around the climate, uh, the emissions safeguard trigger mechanism, where they've negotiated successfully with the Greens to introduce a hard cap on emissions, which was a lot more progressive. And it actually, as much as it wasn't what the Greens wanted, which was a hard lock on no new coal and gas, most coal and gas projects are simply unviable because of this hard policy. Do they then, with this political momentum, go further on tax issues, on economic issues? Do they fix negative gearing, capital gains tax? Do we change the way our tax system works? Do the brackets get smaller, bigger? And, well, where do we go from here? There's just so many questions, all of which I'm still researching and writing about, (laughs) which you can read at the end of this week, hopefully. Definitely. It's definitely a big question about where the Liberal Party is moving and what it will look like for the future of Australia. I guess, like, uh, an important point to me is what were the policies that kind of Labor won on? What what were people looking for and what were they what did they get from the Labor Party? What they got from the Labor Party was it was actually quite simple. And in, a lot of people pointed this out. In the concession speeches, uh, both leaders were full of humility for each other, especially Parate, because it was very much on very simple bread and butter issues. A lot of it to do with public sector wages was the big one. A lot of people were very unhappy and it sort of left in a bitter taste in people's mouths that there was a hard cap on public worker wage rises that the Liberals initiated. The other one was this no to privatisation really cut through in 
dealing with a cost of living crisis. A lot of this doesn't have a lot to do with state policy. There's very little the state government can do. But because this was people's primary concern, the idea that privatization of more government assets, especially things like Sydney Water, mm. that as an issue cut through because people thought that if there were going to be further privatization, costs would go up. And this for a lot of swing voters motivated them to move towards Labor and away from the coalition. Yeah, definitely. And I was just wondering, like, did Labor gain many Liberal stronghold seats? Like you said, they kind of gained back a lot of seats that had traditionally been Labor. Did they get really any new seats? Uh, they did. There was one seat that escapes me now, which was held by the Liberal Party on a margin of 13%. That was wiped out. And the Labor member, well, the new Labor member, who I believe is then going to now take that seat, came in on a margin of about 3%. So a huge swing in some of these seats, as well as the other big one is actually the electorate of uh, Cogra, which is held by Chris Minns, the new premier-elect. That used to be one of, if not the most marginal seat in uh, all of Sydney and all of New South Wales. I think he won it on a margin of 0.2% when he was first elected. He is now won, I think, by 14% over his coalition counterpart. And so that Liberal vote has just been wiped out and a lot of the big thing is that is coming from very key demographics, which are now much more going to Labor. These are demographics like Chinese Australians who have deserted the Liberal Party over the past couple of elections at both state and federal level, as well as some more of these small business types and more of these sort of high